Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for house lights. Go. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody. Welcome to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. Welcome to season three of Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here with a very special roundtable episode of Echo Offstage, where we've gathered a select group of women plus theater artists to discuss some pressing issues in theater today. So I'd like to begin by saying hello to Tanya Holloway, Christy Vela, and to Kateri Kale. And I'm going to start our questions with you, Tanya, if you don't mind. Tanya Holloway was a guest on our season one interview with Anika mcmillan Herod. But what you may not know about Tanya is that she's been working professionally in theater, commercials, and film for 20 years as an actor, director, and videographer. And I've got to throw producer in there too, Tanya, knowing the work that you've done. Writing consultant and casting director for Amazon Prime series, hashtag washed and co-founder and co-artistic director of Soul Rep Theater. So Tanya, give us the background. How did you get involved in theater in the first place? I saw this tube called a television at five. I discovered what it was and said, I want to do what those people are doing. <laughs> I don't know how they got in there, but I want to go where they're going. So that that began my journey to be like those people at five years old that I saw on television. Started, I majored in theater at Prairie View A&M and got a degree, got my BA in performing arts. And from there, as with many actors, once you graduate, get that degree, you've got your training, you go out there and you try your chops, right? You go out there and you start auditioning and become an official starving artist. <laughs> and, and when... And so did that for a while. And, and while I was pursuing my own career in theater uh, on the stage, I met two beautiful women called Donika McMillan Herod and Gwena Bennett Price, co-founders of So Rep Theater. And we got to talking and realized, hey, we, we have a lot of things in common when it comes to the arts and what we want to do, our aspirations, put our minds together and started So Rep Theater. And pretty much the rest is history. And I've been on the stage, behind the stage ever since. <laughs> you guys have done some some pretty amazing things through COVID. And I know that we're going to talk about that, but I, I just want to get a little bit of additional information about Soul Rep. You were there at the beginning, you and two other like-minded women who shared the same passion for theater, founded Soul Rep, and the company has just been going strong ever since. So where, where are you now? How has the company grown since since its inception? We have made leaps and bounds since we first started, given our first beginnings at the South Dallas Cultural Center. Um, we have, one, matured our audience. We've grown our audience when it comes to our what our audience looks like. It used to be primarily a Black audience, but now we, we have a, a variety of, you know, a diversity of groups that are coming and, and 
first time patrons of the arts, which we love. And, you know, through our surveys, a lot of times we get, hey, this is my first time ever coming to a live show. And so that's one thing that we're we're proud that we're we're reaching beyond our community and going into infiltrating other communities that don't necessarily look like the you know us and that's a that's a great thing because we want to share um, our stories with everyone. We where the COVID is you know was a shock to the world and it readjusted everyone's lives. I don't think there's a person on this planet Earth that wasn't affected by COVID. With us, it really helped our company. We were <laughs> we're still kind of in awe of that. And that when I talk about that reach, we were able to globally reach out to a new audience because of COVID, because we had everything virtual. Yeah. And that has really helped our visibility. That is wonderful. So so let's hold the rest of the conversation about COVID for the next question. I want to introduce our guest, Christy Vela, next. Christy is actor, director, and filmmaker. Echo audiences may remember Christy from the production of Night Mother that she directed for Echo in 2016. She's a founding member of the Briarly Resident Acting Company at Dallas Theater Center and an associate artistic director at Theater 3. Christy, thank you so much for taking uh, time to be with us this evening. I'm going to start with the same question that I asked Tanya. How did you get started in theater? Well, much like Tanya, I don't know about Tanya, but I was pretty sheltered as a kid. (laughs) And so I, you know, stayed home a lot and watched a lot of classic movies on on Saturday afternoons. And same thing, you know, I just one day saw Oklahoma starring Shirley Jones. And I was so fascinated by how that could be a musical and also have like a weird dream ballet in it. It's a very specific memory for me. And I remember being much the same way of, of just kind of going like, oh, I want to I want to do the thing that they do. And suddenly my my little hometown in South Texas became really, really, really small at the age of of six or seven, you know, and always knowing that I wanted to go out. It's odd because I went to, I attended Texas A&M and College Station and studied theater there. Aggies, we just go out and make it happen. And moved to Dallas specifically because I had heard of and seen, I had visited my sister here and who lives here at the time. And she told me about Theater Teatro Dallas run by this mad woman named Cora Cardona. And she said, you need to go, you need, you should go see something there or whatever. And I was here on spring break or something. And I, and I, I attended a, a play that she was in called The Tree. And I was absolutely gobsmacked by Cora and just obsessed. And so I moved to Dallas to work with her specifically and didn't start out on stage. I, I, I did everything. I did everything except act. I did. I wanted to act, but but I was so new to town and and you know green. And so I, I I stage managed. I did costumes. I assisted her. I I did everything, everything, everything else. And then one day she was directing a production of a play called The Initiation. And she couldn't find this one actor to play this one specific character. And I said, please, let me just get on stage. Let me do something. 
And I got on stage and improvised like a whole thing. And she was like, oh, my God, we're at this point. I'd been working with her for like a year or a year and a half or two. And she was like, where did that come from? And I was like, I've been holding it back, waiting to get on stage. <laughs> and so I worked with Koda for a long while. She is my first mentor here in Dallas. Her and the great Phyllis Cicero was one of my first mentors in Dallas and a great friend. And I owe Phyllis so much. She taught me a lot about how to how to navigate this business as a woman of color. And so did Gora. With Gora's encouragement, I went out and started auditioning for other theaters. And, and Gora was always very supportive. And then, you know, just kind of like worked everywhere and worked at Big Thought for a while and did art, you know, like was had my babies and was acting in schools and doing workshops and teaching and acting at night when I could. And then I was lucky enough to become a member of the Briarly Resident Acting Company and then my directing career kind of started to take off. And now I'm so happy to be associate artistic director at Theater 3. So Kateri Kale is an actor, director, set designer, company member at Undermain Theater for 10 years. She appeared in Echo's inaugural production in 1998 and has remained active in the company ever since. She is now the Managing and Artistic Director of Echo Theater since 2019, and I'm so happy to see you in a different capacity, Kateri. I get to interview you twice now. This makes me happy. <laughs> I know, Catherine. This is uh, this is uh, unique. So, yeah, it's fun, and I'm so happy to uh, join the group. What a great group of ladies. So let me uh, ask Indeed. you how you got started in theater. I got started at the age of five in Amarillo, Texas. So what kind of theater was there? There was there was none. There was the Amarillo Little Theater. And then there was the there was a dinner theater in town a little later. But yeah, so I took my first acting class when I was five and never looked back. <laughs> I went to school there. Um, I come from a family of teachers, a family of artists. And so my father taught at uh, Amarillo College and I took my under, you know, my first two years, my associate's degree in theater there. And then I transferred over to the College of Santa Fe in New Mexico, which is the other school that, you know, Greer Garson has supported the school at SMU and also the one at the College of Santa Fe because she and her husband, Buddy Fogelson, lived out there in, in New Mexico. So I went out there, finished my degree, got a degree in, in uh, performing arts. I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go home for the summer and I'm going to work at Pier 1. And I have about, at the end of the summer, I think I had $500. And I thought, well, let's see, where can I move with $500? <laughs> So I had a lot of friends in Dallas that were urging me to come down and at least try it out. And that's what I did. So, But one of my teachers at the College of Santa Fe was a woman named Mary Sue Jones. And I didn't know who this lady was. She was wonderful. She was a fascinating woman. And she was kind of a big name here in Dallas Theater Center under, I guess, Paul Baker and all in the early years. And she was the best. And uh, she had actually, part of our training was that we had to call up a, uh, an artistic director at a regional theater and just interview them about their theater and about theater in their town. She gave me Dallas and she gave me the phone number for Jack Alder at Theater 3. So I called up Jack Alder, some goofy girl, and he was the kindest, 
most lovely man spent half an hour on the phone talking to me about theater in Dallas, telling me I really needed to come here, that he 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 thought that we had one of the best theater communities in the whole United States and uh, that the doors were open. So I just remembered that conversation. I thought, well, I'll go to Dallas. I got 500 bucks. Thought I'd stay for a little while, but guess what? Here I've been longer than half my life. So I've I've embraced Dallas and uh, yeah, I worked with these those wild kids over at the Undermain Theater for 10 years where I was a company member. So I thought I knew what theater was until I went down to Deep Ellum in the basement, started learning under Catherine Owens and Raphael Perry and joined the company. And boy, howdy, did we have some fun times in the early 80s and, and, uh, and 90s and into the 2000s. So, but I had always worked with Echo, like like you said earlier, from, from their first production, which happened to be in the basement at the Undermain space. Ah, a um, little history I didn't know. Okay. Yeah, so that was the very first production we did down there it was called dream of a common language and it was about the 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 female impressionists and it was a beautiful show so thrilled to be here we are all glad for that kateri kale so ladies we have something really extraordinary here we've got women who have supported other women who have been supported by other women creating wonderful theater in this town and very iconic theaters that are here and we have an opportunity to talk about some things that are really at the forefront of many conversations in theaters around the country. But right here in Dallas, I get to talk to you three. And I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. So COVID-19, as Tanya alluded to earlier, has changed a lot about theater. So I'm going to start with you, Christy. What, what would you say is the biggest lesson you learned from the pandemic? I'll be very honest. One of the things I learned from the pandemic is that the show doesn't always have to go on. Quite frankly, I know that we all want it to go on and we all want to just keep going. And and we all did in some essence during the pandemic. We all found new ways and forged new paths and did different things and learned new skills. And I think that was really, really great. But I think it was also, it was nice to take a step back and stop for however long we had to stop to regroup to figure out and remember, like, what are the important things about what we do, right? The important thing that we do is tell stories to our community about our community. That's the most important thing we do. And for that, you don't need fancy sets. You don't need super expensive actors from out of town. (laughs) You don't, you don't, You don't need a lot. You just need people who are willing to get in the room and make the thing happen. And people are more important than things. I think that's the biggest lesson for me was that as we come back, as we start coming back, I want to focus on people and not super production value, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely get that. Because when you go through a period like what we've gone through, you you have to get down to the essentials. And yeah. the people are the essentials. I saw you mm-hmm. sort of giving a virtual high five, Tanya, <laughs> to Christy about that. What resonated for you uh, uh, about what she was saying? Downsizing the things, that the, all the bells and whistles. I know that, you know, Gwena, she's been a cheerleader for that. 
within so in, within the company with so rep and even before covid she was saying hey let's get back down to the bare necessities the bones you know let's do a play that requires a cardboard box <laughs> and a pole and a hairbrush and let's do the, <laughs> you know and let's do the daggone thing yeah. because ultimately all those things yes they make the audience go ooh ah you know it's, it makes it spectacular and puts the audience into the world that we create on the stage. But in doing that year after year, you kind of lose what you learned in your training, whether that was in college or just starting out, you know, wherever. That, no, the first thing, it starts with the character. And you can have, you know, the fireworks and stuff shooting up. But if those actors are not, authentic to the characters and the story that you're trying to create, it goes flat. And so that was, that was one of the things that we, you know, we learned is that you don't need all of that. Let's just, let's get back to the basics. I love that you, (laughs) I love that you said it that way, because ultimately if the characters that is not, the characters are not there, if the story is not there, no, no matter how beautiful the set is, it doesn't make the play happen. No matter how wonderful the costumes are. And I'm a costume person too, Kateri. I mean, in my real life, I'm a costume person too. <laughs> but but it's not the glue. It's not the glue that holds everything together. It's those characters and the way that they relate that story that is, makes the magic happen. So, Kateri, I want to come to you for this one. What do you think theaters will do differently from now on since we've been through this process? Well, I think we've, we're approaching everything differently. And I'm sad to say that at the time of our conversation here, COVID has is starting to come back in a different way. There's a different wave coming. And, you know, for Echo, we thought we were headed for live performances and we are still going that direction. But, you know, we've got to keep our eyes on everything now. And so even though I was thinking, we were like, oh, we're post-pandemic. No, we're really not. We've got to think um, more safety-minded, safety first for, for all of our creatives, for our board, for everyone, for everyone we work for. I mean, theater is meant for people to come together and experience a life and humanity and thought, new ideas. And it's traditionally always been best in person. I mean, the big thing about theater for me was, you know, we're all we're all breathing the same air. We're all in the room, but you, you can't do that during COVID. So I think that I I think that maybe some aspects of streaming may continue. It's not my favorite medium at all, but there's a social responsibility in play. And I think that, you know, over these past several years, I would say the past eight, 10 years, so many different things have been coming up for theaters to deal with in different ways. Intimacy, you know, we've got intimacy directors now, We've got COVID safety officers. We've got, they're just things that are constantly um, evolving. So I feel like we just need to acknowledge that the world is going to be different for a while and be open to all those things that make theater the safe place we want it to be for people to come together and experience. Yeah. From a performer's point of view, having the audience there to respond to and to react to 
and to communicate with is just such a different thing than even coming together as we did to be socially distanced and watch a wonderful film of a play that was done at Echo. And I know you guys have experienced the same thing at Theater 3 and at Soul Rep. It's, it's wonderful to be together, but you just want to see those actors for real, you know, in, in some ways. However, I love what you said earlier, Tanya, about how because we had to pivot to this technology that, thank goodness, it was in place, there were some benefits during this too. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I kind of cut you off earlier and I want you to get a chance to make that point. We, we've always wanted to explore, add a new branch to our company, and that is film. In the past, they were like, you know, eventually we're going we're to get around to this film stuff and explore because Tanya does both. And so we want to see how we can incorporate that within the company. And boom, <laughs> here comes COVID. And what do we have in our back pocket? somebody who does film. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that ease of having that accessibility to somebody who, who knows how to navigate, you know, in that world helped our creativity. Well, that is precisely why I threw in the producer role, because as uh, <laughs> one of the most wonderful things that I watched during our pandemic, our, I'm afraid now I'm going to have to say our first pandemic wave was Do No Harm how beautifully that was done and how much it moved me in a way that watching a television show wouldn't have moved me. So yeah, you put your producer hat on that as well as your filmmaker hat for that one. And, and you mentioned that, that the footprint is now not Dallas local. You've gone global. Can you talk about that? Yes, that film, as well as other uh, productions that we had throughout the year, you know, we got feedback from people from all over, from not only across the country, but in other uh, countries as well. Wow. And feedback, particularly on Do No Harm, that, that gained a lot of traction for us because of the subject. And that was New Horizons for us. And we also branched out and did an audio play. And I don't think that's something, I won't say we wouldn't have never thought about doing it, but with COVID, again, it, it pushed that creativity. Okay, we can do this. So how do we shift and still do what we do in another mode? Yeah. And so we did the audio, our first production, directed by Gwena Bennett-Price, and partnered with Weatherford College with their jazz students. And man, that was like... Yeah, that I, sounds like a great collaboration. Was, I missed yeah, that Yeah, that one. was ear food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So, Christy, you are also a filmmaker. What do you think about this whole idea of digital productions going forward? Is there a future in theaters for that? Or would you rather see them kind of go away and get back to bodies on stages and audiences and seats? Well, I mean, of course, I want to get back to bodies on stage and audiences and seats. I think the thing that theater does that film can't do, right, is that thing that you were talking about where everybody comes together in a room, actors and audience, and we make an agreement with each other. We all make an agreement with each other that for the next two hours or so, nothing else exists outside that space, but this space and this story and that feeling of collective breath that feeling of like everybody experiencing that thing that just happened on stage at the same moment is something that cannot be 
replaced. Ooh, I mean, it just that was good. Yeah, it can't, and it's even better when you know. I wrote a blog. We have we have a blog at Theater Three. It's called T Three Writes, and everybody you know occasionally writes something. And I wrote recently about an experience we had during the Music Man out at Discovery Gardens when we got rained out, and it was it's that moment that you don't rehearse. It's that moment that doesn't get rehearsed. You know, we're all hoping that we don't have to do these things. But, you know, there was a moment where we had to move the audience from the space into the dressing rooms with the actors. And we were all freaking out because <laughs> wow. it's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Yeah. And we eventually had to call the show. But in that moment, the actors came out of their dressing rooms into like the other little green room area where the audience, some of the audience was waiting and they sang some songs from Act Two a cappella, and it was just watching the audience like sit there and go, "I was there." They're gonna say, "I was there on the night that this happened." Like, there's nothing like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's the moments we don't rehearse that are the moments that that hit us. And of course, film does something else entirely. Like, film opens up an entire, entire, entire world for storytelling that theater can't necessarily do. A director can tell you exactly where to look. A director can tell you, this is what I want you to be looking at in this moment. This is how I want you to look at it. And, you know, I mean, theater is actor's medium and film is a director's medium and they both are super, super, super strong. But since we're talking about theater right now, I want to get back to that thing that we do when everybody's in the same room together. I don't think that streaming is going to go away forever. We did a lot of things last year that were streaming. Thankfully, Jeffrey also has experience in film. And so we were able, Jeffrey and I were able to just like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And we pulled our resources from, you know, that other camp that for some reason, theater and film people never mix. It's so strange. But we both pulled people from that other team and we're like, come help us do this. And they were fascinated and excited to be part of this new, I don't know, thing that was happening. So we, we had that too. Echo did our play on film. And, you know, basically, I don't know a lot about film from behind the camera, but yeah. I'm the director. And so, so I need your help, film people, to teach me what you need me to do. And they said, agreed. You teach us about how to direct actors and how theater works. Right. So it was a great melding of desire to learn more about each other's medium and yeah. craft. So I, I, that was delightful uh, for me. And yeah. I think we turned out a really nice product with our production of The Other Felix that was a play on film. So, yeah, I don't like I don't think I don't think streaming is going to go away. I think there's always going we're. I think we've all discovered that there's something that we can offer to those patrons that might not feel safe coming back immediately, you know, or, you know, even patrons who are elderly and can't leave the house all the time. That there's exactly. like some there's something else that we can do, especially for them that we can offer throughout our season. So I think it was it, it, it's fortunate that we've now added to our bag of skills. Yeah, I, I love that point because once you discover that there's an audience for you out there, you don't abandon them. If they right. want to see a streaming production, why not provide that for them, you know? And, and I think that you're right. I think that especially with what looks to be 
a serious uptick in, you know, COVID cases recently, we may have folks decide that, no, I, I, I'm not going to get vaccinated for whatever reason. I want to stay home, but I don't want to lose my connection with the theaters that I like to go to. So, yeah, l- let me let me have it, you know, s- streaming as well. Yeah. I mean, like right out of the gate, Jeffrey and I said the next thing we do, it's going to be stream like right after we were shut down. So we did the immigrant streaming and we did like a weird thing and then we got a little bit better and then we got a little bit better and then we got a little bit better. So toward, by the time we got to like the last streaming thing that we did, we were like, oh, we can do that like that. No problem. Yeah. yeah. A whole group of new skills mm-hmm. among very talented and creative people. This can only be a good thing. Yeah. So last year, in addition to dealing with the complexities of COVID, we also had a real inflection point in terms of race relations. Theaters, in the time that I have been alive and involved in theaters, I have watched our local theaters go from the one Latino production in the season, the one African-American produ- you know, production in the season to reach out to that particular audience, to a lot more inclusivity. We're not at 100% yet. And I know that we are all, as theater professionals, really want to, to get to the point where it's not a question of what we should do. You know, it's, a, it's just that, okay, this is the next step. This is, this is how we behave. So how can theaters work towards BIPOC inclusion and anti-racism? Who wants to take that big bite first? Well, this is such a hot button topic right now, isn't it, you guys? I mean, Tanya and Christy can attest to this. In, in Dallas right now, there's constant conversation. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, Kateri, when you when you first arrived in Dallas or when you called Jack and Jack said what it, it was such an open community. Everybody's so open and it's such a generous community. And I'm sitting here going like it was difficult for me when I first got here. I mean, I worked at Teatro and, it, and for a while, that's all people thought I could do. Right. And I mean, right. like I, yeah. I, I, I posted on Facebook the other day when the whole equity thing started coming up about whatever. But I said, you know, I've been here since 93 doing professional theater in some way, shape or form. That is how I put food on my table and fed my children. And 93. And yet I did not get the opportunity to join equity until 2007 because I couldn't get in the room. You have to get in the room first, right? Before you can get those points. And so it isn't, it wasn't, it's better now, much better now, but it hasn't always been an open, welcoming community to everybody. No, I I, I agree. And I feel like the, the, the way for it to change is that people have to understand that there has to be all kinds of people in the room that are making the decisions about your season, that are making decisions about your programming. You can't have a group of white folks in the room at the top going, and this is what we're going to do for black folks. And this is what we're going to do for brown folks. And this is what we're going to do. No, you got to The room that's making the decisions for your theater has to be a room that is inclusive of all voices and all perspectives. That is how it's going to change. And, and white folks have to be okay with looking around their rooms and going, you know what? There's an awful lot of white people in this room. Why aren't there more BIPOC people? Why aren't there more? And they have to be willing to be comfortable 
with their discomfort about talking about that sort of thing. That's what I think. Yeah, it's a bold statement, Christy. It's a true statement. And and the, the thing that you were talking about leads to that one African-American production a year and one Latino production a year and, and one Native American production a year. If you've got folks making the decision who are, and I'm going to steal from one of our board members, are not pale, stale, and male, you get a different kind of programming in your theater. Kateri, you wanted to make a point about that too. You want to go ahead? Yeah, it's. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Christy, about taking too long. It took too long for that to happen for you. I think for me, I'm I'm half Native American, half white. So I look like I'm something, but people can't really tell what I am. You know, Ethnically I'm like, ambiguous. I'm the mystery minority person. Or or I'm not a minority. I mean, I, I've played so many different roles in my we, life. We, and... We've been confused for each other, Kateri. I don't know we if you have. know that. I, yeah. I know. <laughs> in, re- in reviews, y'all. In reviews, like, it's true. I was at a show where Kateri was on stage and I was in the audience with the critic. Kateri was on stage and the critic said, Christy Vela in the role of blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I was in the audience with you, you freak. I know, I know. That was insane. That it was, was insane. so weird. We should play sisters, probably. We should. Christy. I yeah, actually so think for... that we should all play sisters, but that's another conversation. Go ahead, Katerin. I think Katerin. you're right, Catherine. I, I think you're right, too. So basically, I mean, what I want to say about, about it is that now in our in our third decade with Echo, I'm kind of, we're starting anew. We're starting fresh. I am actively looking for other collaborators, trying to get out and see more shows, trying to do my homework so that I know, you know, the people that I think might might be open to coming and, and working with Echo on on a uh, you know regular basis. Yeah, it's a fact. It's a fact, and and we're all aware of it. We all sit around and say, you know, we're awful white. We need to fix this, and so we are working on it right now actively. We've also changed our mission statement just this past year to include the fact that Echo Theater champions the diverse voices of women plus, because I realized there was a need to change the language. Female and woman doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as it used to mean. It's not serving us well. So we're trying to open our minds, open our doors, open our performances and our and our box offices to all people. And so this is the way it should be. And we want to make sure that they feel welcome. So I know, Tanya, that Soul Rep has partnered with Echo Theater in the past. And I'm wondering if you guys have dealt with some of the same issues that Echo's dealt with. You've got primarily African-American stories that you are telling to an African-American audience, although you did say your audience is becoming more and more diverse. Do you find it difficult to find people from other ethnic or racial backgrounds to participate in the artistic side of what you're doing? We have had white people help us, artists help us, mostly behind the stage more so than on the stage. We have solicited to, when when we have our open auditions, we don't say this is for Black people. It's like we're having season auditions, come on out. I think that there is, there could be a idea that color, that because we are a Black theater and we tell the Black experience that, oh, I... I don't have a space in that company. And we've it's been our experience when we have had white actors be a part of a show, their cast, they just really kind of like, wow. And they've told us, wow, I thought this was only just for Black people. 
Like, no, we tell our stories, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we, so we don't always get them to come and audition because of that, you know, them thinking it's just a one-way street. But as far as the BIPOC, you know, that is one of the reasons why So Rep started in the first place. It's because we couldn't, like Christy said, we couldn't get in those rooms. We couldn't get in those auditions. And I'm looking at talent and I'm like, you didn't get an audition or you didn't get a callback. You're, you know, Anika, Hollywood, right? stage. I'll put her up against anybody. She's, you know, one of the best actresses I've ever seen. And she couldn't get gigs. And I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> you know, and, and that's when we said, you know what? If we can't get into the auditions, we'll, we'll start our own company. Christy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, there the I think the only reason I was able to to break out of of working at Teatro Dallas was and Cora, let me tell you, like Cora back in the day was already she was so ahead of her time. Like she was already talking about all this stuff back then. She, you know, she was the person that was like, there's no such thing as colorblind casting. There's no such thing as that. There is color conscious casting. And there and Cora would cast anybody, anybody that came through the door. If you were the best actor, you got cast. She didn't care. And if under main theater had not specifically said we are looking for a Latin woman to be in this play, I don't think I would have gotten the opportunity to 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 go beyond teatro. And I was too young for the role. I, I came in because Laurel Hoitzma, my good friend, who is an Undermain company member, mm-hmm. told Raphael Perry, you need to see this woman. And I was too young for the role, but I came in and I'm glad to say I crushed it. And, and they were like, she's too young. They were like, we don't care. We want to use her anyway. And it was a a play called Shiner by Octavio Solis and Eric N that was a game changer for me. That was a game changer play for me. And, and then people began to see me in a different, in a different way. And I started, I learned from Phyllis. I have to be honest. I would, I would have to walk into a room of auditions, right. And pretend like I had to put on my game face. I had to put on my helmet I had to put on my armor and you walk in like you already got the role. You walk in and you make sure. And looking back on that and remembering myself as a young actress and being that kind of like bold and brash in the audition room, I go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. How could you have done some of the things that you did? But if if I hadn't walked into a room and I'm going to be coarse here for two seconds, if I hadn't walked into those rooms with my dick in front of me, like four feet, 20 feet already, right? And walked in and told a few directors, I'm playing this role. Like just butt out said, I'm playing this role because who else are you going to get? And I mean, these were roles like Amelia or the nurse or, you know, just any anything that was not, uh, tra- is not traditionally a, a Latina actress, which is crazy to me. Like, what? I don't understand. I don't understand any of that stuff. Anyway, you can just, you can feel I, Cora's I, influence. Yeah, in, like, you know, I, in, in in what you're saying, and it is it is very much the truth. The shift has to happen mentally for all of us, so that we mm-hmm. don't just see one type of person playing a particular type of role. And once that shift happens, then 
you you don't take it back. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You don't take it back. You're 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 there forever, and it's a good thing. So so let me just ask as a as a final question in this part of our conversation, not necessarily your own specific theater, but what do you think theaters everywhere can do to support artists who are BIPOC? What do you think? What do you think theaters should be doing that they're not doing? Well, like one of the things that I hear from a lot of older theater makers in this town, I'm not going to be specific, but one of the things that I hear is it's like, well, I mean, if you're not good enough, then you just are not going to get cast. And I think that's pure BS. I think that is pure BS because I know so many BIPOC actors who are just as good, if not better than their white counterparts. Okay. Let's just put that on the table first. Second of all, if we're talking about young BIPOC artists, right, who may not have as much experience as other BIPOC artists, then we have to be willing as leaders of our organizations to take a chance on you. That's how you learn. You put young artists of any color in a room with older, more experienced artists. That's how I learned. That's by, I learned by being in, in the room you know, with, with older actors who had had more experience than me, right? We have to be willing to go all right, we're going to make this, we're going to hire this young person that may not have a lot of experience and we're going to put them in the best room possible and we're going to make the room safe for them and we're going to let them know that they're absolutely welcome so that they have, they feel safe enough to grow and take risks and make big, bold choices. You know what I mean? So yeah, we have to, this, this, all this talk about like quality of product is just bullshit to me. Sorry. Oh, no, those words have been said on this podcast before and they probably will continue to be. So thank uh, you for that truth. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think the, the what you can, what companies can do is just opportunity, just mm-hmm. opportunity. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be 100% polished the first time out. You, you got to bump your head and, you know, earn your keep and learn your craft. You know, Learn your craft. And what's, I mean, like, what's good anyway? Like, I don't understand all this stuff about like, well, they're not good. Well, who made you the expert? Like, do you know what I I mean? You know what? I'm going to get good if I get opportunities to get good. Right. (laughs) That's right. And and show me something that I have never seen before because that happens too, you know? Yeah. And I think if they open their, like, we're all singing, you know, the Glass Menagerie, who says those characters, they... Could be any kind. It's a story that's universal, right? I mean, unless a story, unless a story is specifically Specific. about whiteness, you, yeah. Then why can't anybody? Like the other day, someone said, "Yeah, we're tired of seeing like we don't have to see white stories anymore." And I was like, "But what's a white story? Like, tell me what is a white story?" Because I don't know what that means. Are you t- are you telling me Shakespeare's a white story? Because I can do Shakespeare, just yeah. like you know, I directed a, a production of Pride and Prejudice a few seasons ago and the Bennett sisters, I cast all Latinas. There were five Latina girls as the Bennett girls. And someone asked me if we were doing a thing. Are we doing a thing? And I said, <laughs> well, we're doing Pride and Prejudice. That's right. And that's what we're doing. And yeah. they're like, well, yeah, but you know, you 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 cast all the, the girls as Latinas. And I'm like, you know, well, you know, if you need an answer to that, if you need an answer to that, the answer is that because in 2019 in Texas, you are still asking me why I'm casting Latinas in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. That's why I'm doing it. 
It's as if you say to somebody, I'm doing a French play. And the first thing they think is, oh, that's a white play. Well, there are entire African countries who only speak French. So let's explode that myth right here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like a lot of what I would say, more mainstream companies that don't have a specific mission to produce stories of BIPOC people. So most that's probably a lot of the theaters in America uh, right now. But, you know, we have to give ourselves permission. We are making worlds appear. We don't, if we're, if we're doing, you know, a French play, we don't have to just cast French people. You know, it's not. We I highly all, doubt we cast one French person. No. There's that possibility, right? <laughs> I mean, so it's silly to think, you know, to put these blinders on. Every time I play a role, I have to understand who that person is, what their circumstances are, what the world, what was happening in the world at that time. We always start from square one. And I agree with Christy, you know, it's it's not. Well, I mean, what does a French person look like? I know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In the entire world, with all the populations that speak French, you're going to get every color in the rainbow. Absolutely. (laughs) And the same thing with people that speak Spanish and the same thing with people that speak English. So let's not pretend that we're not all a part of the same family and let's move forward with a different frame of reference. One other thing I think, too, is changing our habits. Yes. And that's not that's, you know, across the, the world, the habit of what we have been conditioned to believing, whether you're the patron or you're the, you know, the, the producer, the habit of believing because we, that we were conditioned that this role is only for this group of people. And once we start changing those, those habits, those, those mindsets, you know, of what we think, like you say, a Frenchman looks like, then that's when you really start to open up more opportunity. Yeah. And and I'm going to give you the last word on that, because I think that that is the big question. It's the opportunity to share stories, maybe in a way that you have not traditionally been taught to share the story, but that absolutely works and helps to expand the way you look at the world. That can only be positive. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for joining us for this week's episode of Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the work we do, please consider making a donation to Echo Theater at the link in the description. If you cannot make a donation at this time, please share this episode with two or three friends and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Simplecast, or wherever you listen. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. We are a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated solely to producing works by women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our producer and podcast manager is Eric Berg. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Our theme music is by Lynn Barnett, executive produced by Kateri Kale, managing artistic director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guests in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, dark. Thank you, dark. <laughs> <laughs>